Welcome to the Business of Security Podcast, episode number two. Your hosts today are Chad Beckman and Ed Snodgrass, and today they talk about the topic of transforming how we do business. They'll talk to Wayne Satan with Affinitas Life. Now let's get to it. the industry need to start talking about that we're not doing today. Information technology is built on a horrible foundation. If we could sort of redo and start from the beginning, we would be so much better off. If you don't invest in it, keep it running, it will blow up. You also have to be able to go in with solutions, not just problems. We have a long way to go if we're going to win this fight. At the end of the day, educated people are really the best countermeasure against all the threats, the threats, the threats, the threats, the threats. What brought you into uh, your current kind of position? Well, my current role, I'm currently Chief Operating Officer and Chief Technology Officer of a company called Affinitas Life, and we are a company founded to change the world of senior living. And the founder of the company, Anthony Santiago, who's been dreaming about this for a while, recruited me via LinkedIn and said, I've got this idea about senior living. And senior living has been seen as real estate. It's like building a shopping center, a condo, mm-hmm. or a hotel. You know, here's a building, we rent it to people. But it's more. It's we rent it to people and we feed them. We rent it to people and we help them stay healthy. And maybe we take care of them when they're infirm. And if you've got dementia, Alzheimer's, or a Lewy body, whatever, we take care of you in a memory care facility. So it's a lot more than just real estate. It's real estate meets hospitality meets healthcare. And Anthony sold me on this idea and said, technology is a big part of what we're trying to do. We've got to have technology to run a distributed business. We've got to have technology to provide care to people. We've got to have technology to maybe monitor their fitness or their wellness. And so there's a lot of aspects to it. And it's been a fascinating couple of years learning about how to apply advanced technology in areas that are kind of healthcare and fitness and dining and all the other aspects. Imagine as you get older, how do you stay healthy? So we're looking at all those things. And you have obviously a lot of growth ambitions over the next, uh, what, two to three years and get into multiple cities? Absolutely. We want to get not only into multiple cities, but we've talked to investors in China. We've talked to investors in India. And so lots of investor interest in various developing countries is either interested in investing in the States but also interested in how do we bring a U.S. model over to their country. So we're talking to foreign investors weekly, if not daily. Hmm. Um, and, and an interesting trend. We've got two other interesting side trends to this. If you look at the number of malls that are collapsing and are abandoned malls, there were, a lot of people are looking at multi-generational housing, are looking at integrated work-life communities. And so malls are being repurposed and reborn. And one of the things that might very well work is senior living. You've got space. You've got the ability to put the services. What if you had the dry cleaner, the restaurant, the orthopedic surgeon, the, the diabetic doctor, and all that right in the same community, and you could just walk to it because it's the other end of the mall. Um, that's one trend that's, that's really becoming quite large. The other one, interestingly enough, is the marriage of higher education institutions, community colleges, traditional four-year colleges, both here and abroad. What if you put a senior living community on a college campus? You've got the intergenerational support that each could offer the other. You've got 
a group of pretty economical teachers. Lots of people don't want to just retire and die. They want to maybe give back. So there's lots of cool stuff going on in our industry that we are trying to figure out the right waves and then ride. Definitely a, a dynamic business. And I would say that, you know, you probably have one day that is completely different than the next and no one day repeats itself. You're totally right about that. Being a young company, we're pivoting in different directions. Again, this weekend, I'm working with a new investor from another country that needs some material generated for the proposal. So this weekend is going to be one of, of strategic planning. The last week I spent was fleshing out a design for a data warehouse to house data about a cohort of seniors. Imagine, imagine this. Imagine you're a drug company or a lifestyle company. And you could run across somebody that had hundreds or thousands or even larger numbers of affluent seniors. Remember, the baby boomers have $12 trillion. That's wow. their net worth. And it's going to either be spent or left to the next generation. Imagine you had a database where you collected information about the sleeping habits, the um, eating habits, the toilet habits, the health, the wellness, the mental state of this group of people. And imagine you were somebody that could monetize that, a drug company, a medical device company, a company creating products. There's all of a sudden value in this data, just like lots of, if you look at what IoT is about, consumer IoT, why did Google buy Nest? Why did a company with their margins buy a hardware company? Not because they want lower margins making thermostats. It's because they want to be the gateway to your house. They want all the data from your smart home to pass through their device. And so imagine having this walled garden called senior living and being able to aggregate that data in a secure and anonymous way and then use it for research, use it for product development and so on. So I've been writing up that proposal. Well, that sounds cool. You've actually like provided our phenomenal segue into really what we want to pick your brain for. And that, of course, is the security aspect to all of that cool functionality that we can offer customers. So... Um, it's no surprise with your kind of vast, you know, experience and knowledge. You've been in the game for a long time. Um, it's really no surprise that, you know, you, you sit on boards, uh, you've got a, a lot of board experience and exposure. And so, um, I'd kind of like to talk about that aspect of your expertise for a second and just start by asking kind of, you know, the money question for me as a CISO. Uh, and that basically is uh, by and large in your experience, are boards satisfied with the information that security leaders are presenting? I'm going to give you an answer that's going to surprise you. The answer is generally yes, but the other question that you should be asking me is do they know what they're doing with that information? Are they, are they comfortable because they're knowledgeable or are they comfortable because they're comfortably ignorant? And the answer is generally the latter. Yeah. And, you know, look at, you've, you've got famous breaches, Anthem, where Anthem said to the Wall Street Journal the day after their breach, we chose not to encrypt our member data because it was inconvenient. Huh? Yeah. I mean, think about that for a minute. I mean, imagine you're the CISO. You get introduced to the board, and you explain we've got HIPAA requirements, we have PCI, we have PII, and they generally like encryption of data. They're all leaning in that direction, let's say. And you <laughs> say to the board, we've decided it's inconvenient, so we're not going to do it. So what would the board's response be? In most boards, they would say, well, you're the CISO, you're the CIO, 
and you think it's okay. So that must be okay. How, how does that now impact discussions you're having with your fellow board fellows, you know, in the industry? Um, uh, is this starting to sort of rock the world of uh, board directors across a diverse industry set? Or is it still somewhat of a grassroots effort to uh, create awareness around, you know, maybe the boards need to uh, self-educate on security and some of the basic requirements particularly as it pertains to maybe regulations? Well, regulations and government influence, of course, drive a lot of board decisions. So things like Sarbanes-Oxley drove a lot of the risk decision. And I want to give you a parallel. When you remember Enron and WorldCom and so on and the the foundation of Sarbanes-Oxley, one of the things it stipulates is a QFE, a qualified financial expert. And so Sarbanes-Oxley, among other things, said every audit committee must have a qualified financial expert. And then they gave some guidelines on what that might be. And if you saw what happened after that was passed, the number of retired big four, I think it was actually big six at the time, partners that became board members went way up because they were pretty much the experts you needed. So let's look today. Let's fast forward to now, post-Anthem, post-Equifax, post-Target, post-Sony. The question is becoming whether boards need QTEs, and I didn't coin the phrase. Actually, Russell Reynolds has done a lot of writing about that, the search firm. A qualified technology expert, analogous to a qualified financial expert. Hmm. Um, There was actually a House bill, HR, I want to say 5060, but I'm not sure. It it never got out of committee. That was going to modify Sarbanes-Oxley to stipulate a QTE. Um, And so when you think about that, there's lots of efforts to put some sort of regulatory teeth behind this. What's going to drive adoption more than anything, look what just happened at Equifax. The CIO and the CISO retired. The CEO is out. Uh, If you look at major breaches, I don't remember a, a CEO being ousted this quickly after a breach ever. No, not this quickly. No. This is within days. I mean, the CIO and the CISO were like 48 hours after disclosure, I think. And the CEO, I mean, clearly, if you look at some other major breaches, CEOs might have left or retired. There was a, somebody wrote an article and I saw it, like posted on Twitter or LinkedIn, and they were showing the history of breaches and CEOs leaving, but they were a year, 18 months, two years away, or maybe not. And so you're seeing a direct impact. And we're not, this is not done yet. This is a company that prided itself on its security prowess. This company had a board member that had a background in technology, had executives with backgrounds in security and technology. And, and the, the question for board members becomes derivative lawsuits. In the target breach, there were some derivative lawsuits either filed or threatened. And that's a lawsuit that goes after the directors personally. And directors have a fiduciary responsibility to the company. They, they owe a duty of care, which means they have to pay attention. They have to know enough to be able to execute their job correctly and take care of the shareholders. So if you could say that a board member, by being ignorant, is not properly caring for the shareholders, you can then say the board member is negligent and go after that person's fortune individually. And public company directors tend to have money in the bank. So they have real risk here. 
And the question then becomes, does your director and officer insurance cover you? And that's a question. And so there's going to be a piercing of that veil. And somebody's going to go after directors and win or at least cost them a lot of money. And that will be a catalyst if it's not a government regulation. So boards worry about risk to some extent. And if you look at the studies and the surveys, many of them feel like they're getting enough from their IT function. The question is, do they know enough to understand if their IT function is adequate? It's one thing to say, yeah, I'm getting updates from my CISO and my CIO. Great. It's another thing to be able to ask a question. Well, why aren't you encrypting? Or do you know that you know where all your firewalls are? You know, Sony and I think one of the, what is it, Deloitte? I remember, remember it was Deloitte that, that was uh, hacked recently. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was a question about firewalls and about admin, admin passwords. So this is basic hygiene. And a board member that can't, if a board doesn't have at least one member that can ask those questions, is the board properly constituted to properly govern? And so board members tend to be complacent. Um, I I learned a long time ago that the stages of mastery are unconsciously incompetent, consciously incompetent, consciously competent, and unconsciously competent. And you got to ask yourself where most boards are today. And I'd say a large number of them are unconsciously incompetent. The Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, they don't know what they don't know, so they're happy with the answer they get. Mm-hmm. Is that adequate to protect the rights of shareholders? The jury is out. I would opine that probably it's not. Now a word from our sponsor, TrustMap, the business management system for security leaders. Let's hear from Aaron Pritz, president of Aaron Pritz & Associates, as he identifies how TrustMap provided a real solution to a real problem. My biggest problem was I inherited um, the incumbent GRC solution, which felt like from, you know, an ex-auditor to come up with some pretty simple risk assessments to assess against a standard operating procedure or a, uh, you know, NIST control framework, things like that, you know, it would take months and hundreds of thousands of dollars, cumulative to millions of dollars to put what I would describe as, you know, a, a glorified spreadsheet. And I've heard other CISOs use that term. I can't quote, I can't uh, claim credit for that term. Uh, and it's not a positive light term. I was introduced to TrustMap. I actually found some stuff online as I was um, spending some time over the holidays looking for the biggest problems that I had faced in information security risk management and really unmet needs and how those could be solved in different ways. And I've got a caveat that I'm not a go buy another tool type of advocate. In fact, I think there's too many tools in information security, and I think we need to do more to consolidate tools versus just keep adding them on. If you wrap all of the stuff that I just set up into one package, I would say if you want to do very effective assessments and set those up with little to no overhead, uh, make them align to maturity frameworks, GDPR, CSF, anything that you want that's standard and basically have a very interactive assessments that you can get results back, have control owners. You've got your assessment thing solved in way less time and spend than doing something like Archer or really any of the other GRC products. I would not qualify TrustMap as a GRC. I think they do some GRC-like things, um, but I would say that they're everything that GRC wanted to be but didn't get there. We'll come back later in the podcast to hear more from Aaron about his experience with TrustMap. 
For now, listeners of the podcast should know they can schedule a free trial of TrustMap at trustmap.com slash business. Now let's get back to the show. Seems like every time you turn around or every time you read something, whether it's on LinkedIn or it's on the internet itself or, or some article, um, you know, there's this clarion call for CISOs and security executives to quote unquote, speak the language of the business. And, you know, the question that I always have is along with that, whatever it means, whether it's talking in terms of dollars and cents or whether it's talking in terms of aligning with, you know, whatever the board's ERM schema might be. Do you think that, you know, this new newer generation of security executive, do you think the onus is on us to to be able to proactively educate and communicate to the board using terms of risk in terms of finance in terms that the board, you know, uses to make decisions strategically with? Do you think the onus is really on you know, those security executives versus, you know, waiting for the board to quote unquote, get up to speed enough so that they could utilize the information that the, that the security executive is giving them. You know, I think that as a technical professional, whether you're a CISO, a CIO, or maybe you're the expert in international tax, you speak a jargon. You day to day, we talk about things that others may not use the terms or the precision we talk about. So, some people say you need to meet your executives 50-50, and I disagree. I think we need to meet them 70-30 or 80-20. It's our job to make sure we're understood. And so whether you're a CISO or a CIO, you need to be talking about risk. And my risk education was risk is severity times frequency. That's, that's inherent risk. And then inherent risk is mitigated with a cost. And that leaves you with a residual risk that turns out to either be acceptable or unacceptable. And that's every conversation I would have with a board talking about risk would use a framework like that. And, you know, we could get into the COSO frameworks and we could get into all the sophisticated security stuff. Boards have a short attention span. I'm sorry, what? Because they're very busy and they're driven by lots of things. And so educating them the way a CISO typically would like let me show you the framework. Let me explain the theory. You're not going to get a lot of board attention. But if you could come to them succinctly and lay out risk, here's the problem. Here's what we got to deal with. And today, there's no shortage of war stories. You know, how are we like or unlike Sony, Target, Anthem, whoever? And say to the board, I, I like the WannaCry uh, attack, actually. I wrote a LinkedIn article. And I wrote it and said to the boards, you actually had a great opportunity here. This, the WannaCry thing for most of us was a great learning opportunity because for most companies, it didn't cripple the company. It wasn't like a ransomware attack that locked up every computer in the company forever. It didn't cost you 10 million bucks to get out of it. For most of us, you had a relatively minor financial impact. And also, because it was so widespread, nobody felt bad about admitting it. If you're a board member, and you're sitting at the country club, you don't want to admit that, well, I got hacked and they stole all my intellectual property because everybody would say, wow, that's terrible. But everybody could say, were you hit by want to cry? I was hit by want to cry. Yeah, me too. And so you have an opportunity to be able to admit it. And that led, in my opinion, to a couple of conversations board should be having. And I wrote an article, so I'm going to shamelessly self-promote. I put it out there and said to directors, you ought to be talking about hygiene security hygiene. 
you ought to be talking about technical debt and you ought to be talking about the need for this QTE. We need to have somebody on the board that can help us understand. So while I say the CISO and CIO need to really be able to talk to the board members, it goes both ways. Um, and you have to be talking about that. Now, I will also tell you that there's another risk that's underplayed. Today's world of digital disruption, digital transformation, means that just worrying about obvious risk keeps you from transforming and innovating, which then subjects you to the risk of disruption. So when I talk to a board or work with a board, I want them to understand the risk. This is a risk of being hit, taken down, losing. But here's a risk of not being able to seize an opportunity. So when you look at technical debt, for example, one of my favorite subjects, if you are burdened with technical debt, you have an infrastructure that's potentially porous with a large attack surface. That's bad. But you also have an infrastructure that's an albatross around your neck. And when the business needs to pivot, you, the IT function, cannot pivot because you've, you're weighed down by these Windows XP machines and unpatched servers and a horribly inefficient firewall security structure, 30-year-old programs where there's no security. And so you can't respond. And that's a risk of not being able to stay up with your competitors and up with your entrance into your market that are disruptive. So I think boards need to weigh both kinds of risk. And I don't think we as technical professionals do a great job explaining that. What have you seen that has worked really well from a CISO perspective who may have grown up in the industry through IT to effectively present and, and kind of a, and, and uh, adherence to my question is, you know, how much time would that individual have on average to present that information to the board? Well, how much time they have, typically, unless the board is particularly worried, and I'd say recently being measured in weeks, it's probably changing. You typically get your four slots a year, quarterly board meetings, and you get half an hour. Or maybe the IT department gets an hour in most boards. And so, and what typically gets presented is we had this many denial of service attacks. We had this many virus attacks. We fought them all off. And, and people go through meaningless statistics, speeds and feeds. I like that. Speeds and feeds. That happens all the time. Yeah. It's all the internal measures that we know. And again, they're not wrong to know these things, but is that the number one thing for the board to know? I, I'm working with a company. Um, I was working with a company advising them, and they were getting from their technical group all of these meaningful, meaningless statistics about denial of service attacks and number of bad packets. And I said, so I said to one of the executives, what do you do with this information? Exactly. Said, I, file, I file it. I said to the board, you know what you should ask that group? You should ask them to send you one sentence. It should say everything was good this quarter or month or whatever. Or, hey, there's a problem that you ought to know about. And here's what it is. Stop sending me all the reports. Start sending me insight. Give me the insight that you derive from your 30 years of experience as a CISO or as an outsource vendor or an IT company. Um, tell me if I should be worried and then be prepared to answer if I ask why. Um, so that's what I think. And so presenting meaningless statistics is great. And the auditor wants to see it. And you probably got to publish it somewhere in your annual report. Great. But spend that few minutes 
The question I always want to ask is what keeps you up at night? Board members, what keeps you up at night? Now let's hear more from Aaron Pritz as he describes what TrustMap is in his own words. The other parts of my job is with program maturity. Um, some really nice things that the product's doing to you know, rate yourself via the control owners that actually own controls and again, very interactive assessment tools to kind of rate yourself and rate your program and be able to see, you know, are you moving the, the ball or not? I think over investing in anything and everything and having tons of funding that doesn't really get spent effectively is a problem in security. So you've got to really measure where you're moving the needle and really align that to your portfolio and program management, which you can also do in TrustMap. What is TrustMap? I would really say it's the framework alignment of GRC into the ability to do assessments. Um, I think it really does a lot of the things that GRC wanted to do, but again, more and in less time and far less money. It's all the portfolio and program management that currently in InfoSec groups are cobbled together through Microsoft Project, SharePoint, and Excel tracking, and PowerPoint status updates. Um, and then it's also program maturity measurement, which right now a lot of programs, including my prior program, we were basically doing everything in Excel and PowerPoint to try to keep tabs on where are we pushing the needle, where not. And again, spending hours and weeks and months um, working on some of the stuff that I saw right out of the box in the first 30 minutes of the demo of TrustMap. So those are a few of the thoughts that I would say um, why I'm so excited about TrustMap and why I would be, you know, if I go back to a corporate security leadership job, why I would be coming out of the gate with that versus trying some of the things that I've already tried and, and, and weren't overly happy with. Remember, listeners of the podcast can schedule a free trial of TrustMap at TrustMap.com slash business. Now let's get back to the show. The other thing I would urge CISOs is to ask your CEO or CIO to be invited to the board dinner. The night before a board meeting, there's typically a dinner. It's a social event. It's a time to meet the board members and get a chance to socialize about business and just Learn what's on their mind. That is great advice. I have not heard anyone talk about that. And you're right. It's why not network with the people you need to present to and get to know them as individuals and what makes them um, tick and, and what they think about and how they react and what they're interested in. Exactly. And boards are encouraged to interact with people other than the CEO and CFO. That's actually something that's covered in board education. The board should understand the key people in the company and should be comfortable reaching into the company to ask questions. Um, There's a very famous board description. A board should be noses in, fingers out. Hmm. Maybe you haven't heard that. Maybe you have. The board should ask about everything. They should be looking for the bad smell. But they, they don't have the ability to change anything. And so boards, board members have to resist the temptation to manage, they govern. But on the other hand, they really need to know. So if you have a relationship with a board member, they would be more likely to pick up the phone. Hey, I just read about what happened with Equifax. Does any of that matter to us? Does any of that mean anything here? And you could then give them an answer over the phone right then and either make them feel better or not, depending on the situation. So having that comfort and also having the board members recognize the CIO or CISO isn't some two-headed monster 
that only speaks in acronyms. Uh, you've got to be able to behave and, and act like you're a business person. I think the best, uh, the nicest thing anybody ever said about me professionally was I'd gone to a board dinner. I, didn't, I was new in the company and I'm talking to board members and I was sitting next to a guy. And at the end of the dinner, he asked, what did I do in the company? And I said, I was the CIO. I think I was the CDO, chief digital officer. And he said, boy, I wouldn't have guessed that. And that was the best thing, the nicest thing anybody ever said to me in business. Yep, that got they it. couldn't tell I was the head geek. Yeah, yeah. Very good, very good. Uh, thank you for sharing that insight. Uh, this is extremely helpful, and to gain your perspective is uh, wonderful. You're, you're uh, really enlightening us. One other question we want to ask you is, uh, if you could influence one aspect in the industry with regard to cybersecurity, uh, what would that be? If you could change one thing or influence uh, an aspect of the industry, what might it be? Well, I think the biggest problem we face today the biggest risk is what I described earlier is technical debt. And if you think about technical debt, it's an off-balance sheet liability. And so what I mean by that is I put a system in, cost $50 million bucks, And for 10 years, it's been running, and I've starved it for maintenance. I haven't updated it. I'm still running in a Windows XP. I'm on a nine-year-old version of the, the SAP system or the Oracle system. And we keep creating this bigger and bigger hole we've got to dig ourselves out of. And ask yourself this. If you went in front of a board and said, I'm going to build an oil refinery, and it's going to be half a billion dollars, and they said, what's it going to cost to maintain it every year? And you say, oh, don't worry about it. I'll find a way to cover that. The board would pitch you out the window. Yep. But you can, go and you can go in with the new ERP system. I need $500 million for a new ERP system. And what's the total cost of ownership? Well, we'll manage to cover it out of the IT budget every day. That's crazy talk. But because the business never had anybody say an ERP system is kind of like an oil refinery. If you don't invest in it, keep it running, it will blow up. Uh, Equifax had to blow up. Target had to blow up. Sony had to blow up. These are no less real than the oil refinery that blew up and scattered pieces of metal across the countryside. So if... If boards started to understand, or maybe if the accounting structure, if GAP, looked at this as being unfunded, off-balance sheet liabilities, just like Enron was doing and WorldCom was doing, they would have a different understanding of investment needed to mitigate the risk of breach and the risk of not being able to pivot. And so that's what I'd like to see is a, an open discussion about technical debt and how it should be reported to investors. Essentially, what I think of when you describe that, which is very critical uh, to transparency, as you're uh, highlighting, I think of it as a business plan for the uh, various disciplines, you know, whether it be the ERP environment or the security program. Uh, but essentially having a business plan is this is our plan. This is what we're going to do. This is what it's going to cost. Here's our headcount. Here's how we're going to get there. Um, and uh, that way it's uh, transparent, as you say. Right. And it's nobody's guessing and it's not this debt that just, uh, you know, a, a monthly payment that has to be continually made in order to uh, sort of save the day. Well, you know, I tell people they, they don't believe me, but I tell them that that software rusts. Like, you know, if you build a building out of metal girders and you don't keep painting, you build a bridge and you don't repaint it, the bridge rusts. I tell them software rusts. I, I jokingly say the bits fall off. And what I mean is 
I built a system 20 years ago out of whatever language, you know, my power builder system from the mid-90s. I don't have any more power builder programs or my mainframe assembler ERP or banking system or insurance system. So over the years, first of all, the attackers find ways to circumvent it or uh, attack it directly. People who can maintain it go away. Systems that it interfaces with evolve and it doesn't. And so not investing in your software infrastructure is as bad as anything else. But people assume, I bought a copy of Microsoft, you know, Windows 3. It still runs. I can turn on the computer and it works. Therefore, it must be okay. They don't realize what they've then created is this monster that their house system can be attacked, their business system. And if you look at, again, I'll go back to WannaCry. It, It pointed out how many companies just ignored basic principles. And, and why? I'll go back to technical debt. They had so much of this technical debt, they were digging and digging and digging to try to fix the problem and had no money to re-engineer, rearrange, and secure their world. And so I think it comes down to we in IT have been pretending, because we don't want to get yelled at when we ask for more money, so we don't talk about this problem. If my system costs a dollar to put in, it probably costs 20 cents a year, 25 cents a year to maintain. Absolutely. Everybody asks for the dollar. The other one I love is, you know, we we went to Oracle or SAP and we bought a system and it's 22% or 24% annual maintenance. But we're going to build a system ourselves and therefore the maintenance is free. And in my world, if you put in an in-house system, you will put 24% per year as part of your total cost per ownership. It's not free. It's just nobody else is doing it for us and charging us. Mm-hmm. And people forget that. So the total cost of ownership calculation is broken. The budgeting process is broken. The understanding of the financial decisions we're making is broken. And that's largely because IT people don't think like the CFO. So the board has to learn some IT, and I strongly believe that. But at the same time, we in IT need to learn how to sell our ideas like the head of marketing like the head of engineering, like the head of product would sell his or her ideas. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Wayne. Uh, Really appreciate that insight today and you sharing it with us. Thanks for listening to the Business of Security podcast. A special thanks to today's guest, Wayne Satan with Affinitas Life. Your hosts today were Chad Beckman, founder and CEO of Secure Digital Solutions, and Ed Snodgrass, Chief Information Security Officer at SDS. You can connect with Chad and Ed on LinkedIn and learn more about Secure Digital Solutions at TrustSDS.com. Our show was produced by Dan Rollins with LiveWire Films. You can find Dan on LinkedIn and learn more about LiveWire Films at LiveWireFilms.com. Check out our next podcast episode with Charlie Langdon, CEO at Vault Data. The topic is an executive view of cyber risk. You've been listening to the Business of Security podcast, and that's a wrap.